Hi, I'm Anna, uh, co-founder of Political Playlist, and welcome to the Political Playlist Happy Hour podcast, our nonpartisan, non-outrage take on what's happening amongst the youngest members of Washington um, in Congress. And we are here to help you connect better to the political system and hopefully change the way that we talk about politics in this country. Um, today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by Sergeant John Lebecki. He is a, a military veteran who served twice in the armed forces. He served in the Marine Corps and then after 9-11 um, joined the North Carolina National Guard and was deployed in active combat zones in Iraq um, for, for across many years. So John, thank you so much for joining us and for being on here to talk today. Glad to be here. Um, you know, so so really the reason that we connected was I have a friend who you're working with um, in an organization called MAPS, and I was wondering just off the bat if you can just quickly give a brief rundown of what MAPS does, and then we can kind of talk a little bit more about your background. A, a C3 nonprofit that wholly owns a Delaware registered public benefit corporation that is currently conducting phase three clinical research trials on MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Although most of what you've seen in the media and stuff has talked about veterans in this research, honestly, we've treated far more non-veterans um, than, than veterans mm. because PTSD is not just a veterans issue, it's right. an everybody issue. However, one of the advantages that veterans have is people are willing to listen to us about our PTSD on both sides of the aisle because veterans issues typically have not been red or blue issues, but red, white, and blue issues. Mm. And it's actually really kind of nice to see psychedelic medicine, at least being a red, white, and blue and not a red or blue issue. Yeah, absolutely. So your journey into this, um, obviously you are a veteran. Um, and so after serving in the Marine Corps and then eventually joining the National Guard, I was just wondering if you can talk a bit about what the transition was like for you back into civilian life and also what the experience was like of understanding that you had PTSD and kind of beginning the journey to try to, um, you know, to try to reconcile with that and ultimately treat it. Um, coming home was crap. Uh, that's the short answer. Um, <laughs> And part of it was, it wasn't just like, you know, Iraq, it was also a lot of things. And, and to the military's credit, they have fixed some of these issues. Um, I deployed 0506. I, you know, was getting mortared one minute. And then 36 hours later, I was sitting in a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina. Wow. And so there was no decompression time. I mean, I distinctly remember because you carry a rifle with you everywhere. So if you go sit down at a chow hall or like in front of a computer or something, you either put, you put your weapon in a rack or you put it under your chair. So when I would get up, I'd go to reach for my rifle in a bar. Did not have a rifle, but, you know, you, you get locked in that mentality. Now, fortunately, they do a, a one to two week decompression time in like Germany or, or other places, which is a really smart move. But also when I came home, I no one met the aircraft. Wow. Um, my family did not come and... My wife at the time moved in with a lieutenant colonel. So, yeah, you were that's on your how own. I came home to an empty house. You know, my dog was gone. My motorcycle was gone. My wife was gone. Like, it, I, my life, I, I walked off the airplane from Iraq to a country song. Within 60 days, I mean, I knew I, I was having problems. Um, I knew one of the things I noticed was I was hearing things that weren't there. Um, I had a lot of auditory hallucinations. I hear explosions that weren't there or helicopters. And so it didn't help that the house I lived in was right near Fort Bragg. So sometimes it actually would be like the impact range, but a lot of times it wasn't. And so I knew I was having problems. And then within 60 days, I put a gun to my head and pulled the trigger. And I'm alive because of a squib load and I have five total attempts, that's when I realized, okay, there's a problem here. And on that night of that first attempt, I went to a church for help and was told they were full. Um, it was Christmas Eve. I went to an army hospital and was given six Xanax, told not to take them all at the same time because it might kill me, and then sent home and told to give my weapons to a neighbor, like four o'clock Christmas morning. So I went home and I drank a fifth of vodka and 
put a gun to my head. And so I reached out at the time I had a civilian job uh, because I was National Guard. I had gone back to that. So I had health insurance. So I went and got a psychiatrist who put me on Zoloft and did nothing else. Um, when I had lost that job, I ended up going to the VA and I got put into a, actually a really great program at the Durham VA, their OIF, OEF program. I cannot speak highly enough of them. And there's also some bad VAs, don't get me wrong. I have horror mm-hmm. stories as well, but this is an office and a VA that did really good in part because the head of it, uh, Dr. Bruce Capehart was an Afghanistan veteran. He was actually an army psychiatrist who then went to go work at the VA. And with my work with MAPS, I've actually found out how normal it actually is for like reserve or guard therapists to deploy and then come back and work at the VA. But they're the ones that determine that, okay, yeah, I have PTSD. I also have a TBI. And they had very limited solutions. And so they put me on all sorts of pills because that's all they could do. We did talk therapy. We did a bunch of different types of therapies and none of them worked. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things to understand about PTSD is it's a spectrum. It's kind of like autism in that respect in that, you know, you have people who have PTSD who are very high functioning, who, you know, going to church or going to the gym or something like that is all they need. Some people, a Zoloft a day keeps the demons away. Other need weekly talk therapy. Some people need cannabis and, and other things. My mantra has not been that, that MDMA-assisted therapy is a silver bullet and will cure everyone because the science shows it won't. But my mantra has always been anyone with PTSD should have every option on the table because PTSD is a terminal illness that will kill you. Hmm. plain and simple and it doesn't have to in part because the science has proven you don't have to and so I then honestly at the age of 33 three years after I came back from Iraq discovered that this this medicine you may have heard of it called cannabis um and I started using that and it, it helped keep me below the threshold where I didn't actually try to end my life thought about it every day but I'd go smoke a joint instead. Um, And it helped me to be able to interact with society and things like that. And then I met a woman and moved to South Carolina and she had my now stepson. Um, It's my second ex-wife, but, and because it was South Carolina where weed was exceptionally illegal and she had at the time, an eight-year-old child, she was fearful that if I got caught with weed, her ex-husband would come and take her kid. So she said, we can date, but you can't smoke weed. So I stopped. I went back to the VA and they put me on 42 pills a day for mental and physical issues. Now, some of this is they give me like four different pills rather than give me opiates because, well, opiates are bad and the VA doesn't know how to handle them properly. So some of it was just doing all these medications rather than doing the work necessary to use the proper medication with the proper kind of monitoring to ensure like no addiction and other things. And after 11 months of that, I slipped my wrists and I went and spent 10 days in the hospital. In order to get out, you have to sit down with the VA and, and do a suicide plan. And one of the questions they ask is, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? So I told them, you know, quite honestly, quit fucking with me. And, you know, they said, no, we're going to still do that. So what's, what else is on the list? And so I'm like, I need weekly therapy every week. And I need a meeting with all four of my doctors, my back doctors, pain management, mental health, and, and primary care. I want all four of them in one room with me. So we can come up with a plan because part of the reason I was on all these pills is none of these officers were talking with each other. Now, this was the Charleston VA, not Durham. Durham actually instituted a program where when I was treated there, every one of my doctors who saw me to include specialty care on a, a, a regular basis, depending on, on the, the, the particular veterans case, it could be weekly, it could be biweekly, it could be monthly, depending on how often they needed to meet. 
but all the doctors got in one room and discussed the patient and came up with a care plan. Charleston was not doing that. And that's part of the reason I was on 42 pills a day. And all of them were blaming somebody else for why they couldn't help. That actually, that meeting never occurred. Only two people showed up. The other said, I don't care if the director of the hospital says I have to attend, I'm not going to. But I did get weekly therapy and the mental, the director of mental health, who was my psychiatrist in Charleston, really did a, made a concerted effort to get me weekly therapy. Well, in, in one of them, something happened on the inpatient floor, so she couldn't meet with me. And, and like, I'm not a dick. I understand that there's cases worse than mine, especially on any given day. Like, okay, that's cool. We can meet next week, but I need medication. She's like, well, if you've got enough to last till next week, just wait till next week. Or if you want to meet with my intern, you can meet with her and then I'll just sign off. And, you know, you know, on the prescriptions. And the reason is they had to actually see me because I was on a schedule two narcotic. So they had to actually physically mm -hmm. see me to write the script. Uh, I was riddling. Well, this intern knew about the map study. So she, wow. she slides this piece of paper folded in half across the desk. She says, stick that in your pocket. Don't tell anybody about it until after you leave. I'm like, hey, what the hell is this? She's like, giving me her phone number. I have like, I, I got no <laughs> the whole time. Cause I'm just like, what the hell's written on this piece of paper? I walk out and I open it up and it says Google MDMA PTSD. Wow. I'm just imagining that's like the, the strangest meet cute if it was her phone number. <laughs> I mean, hey, I, I don't know. I like that would be a weird origin story, but, <laughs> you know, so I did and I read about it and I found out that MAPS was doing the trial in Charleston County, South Carolina, about 10 minutes from my house. Wow. So I called them up and I'm like, hey, I'm crazy. And they're like, well, let us ask some questions. You're like, cool, you are kind of crazy. And I was the 26th person in a 25 person trial. I was only allowed to participate because two other people dropped out before they completed because they felt they were healed. So they made space for me. And then the door on the phase two trial closed behind me, which is something I've mm -hmm. been very cognizant of, especially because I come from the NCO ranks. And I went through MDMA therapy. Actually, I took my first pill exactly to the day, eight years after I came off active duty from Iraq. Wow. November 22nd, 2014 is when I took my first dose. I took my last dose in, I believe, March of 2015. And I haven't done MDMA since. Yeah. Um, I've also had some highly traumatic events happened in my life since then to include a landscaper drowning in the lake behind my house. I dove in, pulled him out, did CPR until EMS and EMTs arrived. And I also had a gentleman shot in the chest in front of me in Charleston, who I again did, you know, attempted to save. Was a, I can't fix bullet holes on a sidewalk. Um, but and there were, there were others too. I actually, I went and saw a therapist and, and like talked about it, but I haven't had to do a relapse protocol or take and do MDMA therapy again, even though I've had additional yeah. trauma. Yeah. In part because I realized how important therapy is. And as someone who came from a place of being very anti-therapy, in part because, so like many people with PTSD, I have early childhood trauma and my mother was very abusive. I reported that to the court ordered psychiatrist who then broke confidentiality and told my mother that I reported her rather than reporting it to the state as he was legally required. I didn't trust anybody, any therapist after that. Throw on top of that in the military, therapists are the ones who determine whether you stay in or not. Hmm. By doing MDMA, I finally saw, it, it, on top of all the other things that the science shows, it personally helped me realize that therapy can work and I can actually trust a therapist. Yeah. And so honestly, when the gentleman was shot, as soon as the cops were done talking with me, they're like, hey, a detective's coming at some point, but you just need to hang out. I'm like, totally cool. They're like, and we need your shirt. 
because it was covered in blood, so it was evident. Okay, now realize I had left the political event and went to my buddy's bar to get a drink. Walk, went, was walking out to my, to my car to get a battery pack to charge my phone when everything happened. So like, I'm in a suit. Although I left my blazer in the bar when I went out to the truck. So that's why it didn't get anything on it. So I actually did a news hit that night because media wanted to interview me with no shirt on in a blazer. It was, it's the funniest thing in the world. But That's a look. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, all right, they're like, can we interview you? I'm like, you can interview me, but you have to include in the interview why I'm not wearing a shirt because I'm not yeah. going to be from South Carolina, <laughs> hick redneck. Like there's a legitimate reason. Um, and it was funny because the I went back into the bar and like a bunch of patrons are like, you can't come in with your shirt off. The bartenders who knew me and knew what had just happened were like, he can do anything he wants. Yeah. I'm like, do you guys have a bar t-shirt? They're like, all we have is an extra small. Okay, I'm six foot two, <laughs> 200 pounds. The extra small is just not going to fit over my head. So I had to do the whole thing shirtless. But as soon as the cops were done with me, I went, I washed the blood off my hands. The bartender slid three shots of tequila across the bar. <laughs> I took those. And then I walked outside and I picked up the phone and I called Rick Doblin. And, and this is, and, and so Rick answers, he goes, oh, hey, John, I'm on the other line with Michael. Unless this is an emergency, you know, can I call you back in like 30 minutes or an hour? I'm like, I just did CPR on a gunshot victim. He died in my arms. He goes, hold on, let me bring Michael on the line. Hmm. And I did an hour long therapy session right then while I was waiting for the detective. Oh, and so Rick, sorry, because I think I might have missed it at the beginning. Rick Doblin, he's he's one of the heads of MAPS, right? He's, he is yeah. the executive director of MAPS, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, you know, from sort of a physicality standpoint, I think that obviously people very much associate MDMA with like a party drug, right? That's like what people, people associate yeah. it with in our modern culture and have for a very long time. But I, you know, in the nitty gritty of going through that therapy, I'm curious, like what you experienced, you know, after you would go through a session and as you progressed, did you feel changes happening in your body? Did you feel changes happening in your brain or was it all kind of happening on like, a different level? While from I was where you under were? the influence, I mean, it was 125 milligrams of pure MDMA supplied by the DEA and then a 70 milligram booster dose two hours in. I was absolutely feeling it to the point of, yeah. I don't like, and it's funny because it's in my therapy tapes. I, like I said it multiple, multiple times. I don't get how people go out to parties and do this. Um, but it, it's interesting because it is very different. And, and yeah. you know, since this is a politics broadcast, you know, I go up on Capitol Hill and I talk about this. And it's really funny because the analogy I use is colonoscopy. Because they start asking, well, what about addiction? What about, like, yeah. this is just a party drug? And I'm like, all right, let's have a different conversation. Once you reach a certain age, and let's be honest, the people on Capitol Hill are all, like, fossils. and Mostly that, that age. Serving yeah. in the 1700s. So, like, yeah. they've all had a colonoscopy. And, like, nobody wants to talk about it. And it's kind of embarrassing, which is part of how this works. And, I, and, and I'm like, so it's a necessary medical procedure. Otherwise you could die. Yeah. I'm like, and so the first thing you do is you go in and, and they give you really good drugs, but it's okay. Cause there's a specially trained person in the room an anesthesiologist who's giving it to you. It's not like they give it to you to take home. And then you go through some traumatic stuff and then you come out of it and you know, it, when you're coming out of it, you might feel a little giddy and, 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 and good and a little stoned, and it's okay. Then you go home, and what you don't do is wake up the next morning and go, wow, that anesthesia was so great. I think I'm going to go get another colonoscopy. Because realize when you do MDMA-assisted therapy, you don't just like take MDMA and go to a club. You lay down and right. you do eight hours of therapy going through all the most traumatic events in your entire life. It's not fun. Mm. It, it, it's, it, it's hard work. It's also because of the MDMA. It's not traumatic, like say prolonged exposure therapy and some of the other ones are. Honestly, that clicks. 
that yeah. analogy clicks because they're like, oh, wow. Because what I've just done is shown them that in a medical setting, they've already taken super powerful drugs that the government says, okay, you can't take this home with you. So there's already a model. And when you, you show them the, the direct equivalency, it works. They get it. Mm. Yeah. No, totally. I mean, so I'm, speaking of politics, you know, just diving a little bit in that direction now to the work you're doing post therapy. Um, you know, you, you've talked about how you got AOC and Matt Gates to agree on something um, in terms of uh, uh, supporting this work around studying psychedelics as as it was also for trauma. A few years and, ago, before the allegations came out, just thrown. There me. we go. Okay. Yes. Although when it, when they said he was partying with people with MDMA, I was my my first thought was, well, it totally explains why he was okay with this. Um, but. <laughs> And, and all not it wasn't just Matt Gates. Um, yeah. Honestly, eight other Republicans voted in, in with AOC and Matt Gates on that amendment in the House. Yeah. Um, to include Brian Mast and a few others. I mean, it is a bipartisan issue. I haven't heard very many people on the right push back. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, the reason I'm in Houston, Texas, is because on Friday, myself and Rick Doblin are the closing speakers at Dan Crenshaw's Congressional Healthcare hmm. Innovation Summit in Houston. So Dan Crenshaw, you know, a paragon of the conservative movement, yeah, is supporting psychedelic research. And a lot of a lot of conservatives are. And it's it's kind of interesting because one, they they truly understand how MDMA assisted therapy and how the MAPS protocol works is medical. Whereas a lot of them, it's really interesting. They'll support MDMA-assisted therapy and not cannabis because they don't view Mm. smoking. There's this mental tick of you can't smoke medicine. Now, we all know there's a lot of different ways to to consume THC and and cannabinoids that don't involve smoking. But because that's what everyone thinks of, that's that's a, a, a... Uh, sometimes an obstacle you can't get over also with cannabis it's here's a card smoke however much you want whenever you want wherever you want this is three times you've got two specially trained therapists they do view it differently now i've actually talked to quite a few very evangelical people you know people who don't even believe drinking should be legal yeah who are supportive and, and their reasoning was rather interesting they would rather someone do this three times than have them be on mind-numbing and soul-numbing pills for the rest of their life. Right. And their thing is, like, like I've had a two-star general tell me point blank, I don't care if you give my guys black tar heroin three times. If it makes them stop killing themselves, I don't care. Hmm. But I think the biggest message and the biggest realization for humanity is frequently missed when we talk about psychedelic science. We have all been told PTSD is a chronic lifelong mental illness that once acquired is your new normal. We can mitigate symptoms, but this is your new normal. And when people don't want that to be their normal, they kill themselves because they lose hope. I and a lot of other people who've gone through the trial are living proof that it's a mental injury that can be healed in four months like a broken bone. I don't know a single person who breaks their leg and is like, nah, I'm good. I'll limp along with it for the rest of my life. No, they go to the doctor and they get, they're given really powerful drugs. Like if you break a leg, you're probably going to get morphine in, in the ER. You're going to have a couple, may have a couple of surgeries and then you'll have to do physical therapy. Gee, like MDMA therapy with integration. It's an injury, but the bigger picture here is that's, one substance and one acquired mental illness. Most of what we call chronic lifelong mental illnesses on this planet are acquired due to trauma. You heal that trauma, the mental illness goes away. We can heal mental illness. It's not this lifelong death sentence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest, the big picture here. I mean, imagine a world 50 years from now where 
all the people in Congress have had all their trauma healed as they grew up and as it occurred mm. because psychedelic medicine allowed for it. I want our politicians to make good decisions based on facts and not based on emotions. Mm. I was just going to ask you about that, like, you know, the idea of we all have trauma and you had said before, you know, PTSD presents in various different ways, some much more manageable, some much more um, intensified. And, and I think that's true of, of all mental illnesses that we have. And so you can only imagine the sort of leaders of our world, you know, many of them probably have not reconciled with uh, whatever trauma and, they're holding, however severe. And there also is a specific definition and criteria for PTSD, just as there is for OCD and others. I believe everyone should be allowed to heal from any trauma, but also just because you have trauma doesn't mean you have PTSD. Uh, and it, get, it, it gets complicated, but when it becomes like a broken bone where people can just go to a clinic and be helped, the world can be a better place. Hmm. So that's, we're not, I mean, we're so still that kind of- agree, yeah. We're still gonna be tribal, but at least the arguments will have logic and it won't be based right. on fear. I mean, right. how many, Democrats hate Republicans simply out of fear and emotion and trauma. And how many Democrats hate Republicans out of fear and trauma? If we can heal that, then we can have conversations and we can come to, you know, consensus. Yeah. So, so I'm curious, you know, the implementation of that, right? When you talk about, you can go to a clinic you can figure out what route is gonna be best for you. You are working with MAPS obviously to make this a reality. And I know that you've been making headway. So, you know, correct me if there's more or add on, but there's a bill working its way through the California legislature um, to legalize the use of, of psychedelics. There's also no. um, the, okay, correct me. Yeah, please. It will decriminalize Okay. the use of of not all, but most psychedelics, which is different than legalizing a, a structure like what I'm talking about with clinics and, and so on and so forth. Okay, I see. So, so it would decriminalize possession, but not quite to the step of making it a widespread accessible um, therapy yet. Okay. Great. What, what SB yeah. 519 in, in, and I actually have not worked much on SB 519 because I'm in DC, not in California. Mm -hmm. We have people in California who are working on it. Um, but my understanding is basically what it says is if you're a therapist and you do therapy with somebody who has taken mushrooms, for example, you're not going to get arrested. Mm. Um, which is different than legalization where like, for example, and, and only because it's it's the greatest example, but I hate using it only because of how polarizing they are. I, I would like to see it like Planned Parenthood, where there's a mm -hmm. clinic everywhere and somebody can just walk in and say, I have trauma. This is what's going on and sit down with somebody who can say, OK, you need some counseling and that's it. Psilocybin therapy is best for you. Ayahuasca is best for you. Ibogaine's best for you, whatever based on their individual needs, their individual comfort level, and, and what's gonna help them the best. That would be a legalized structure. I see. Um, I, I do have personal concerns with people who are not trained doing therapy on people who are on the influence of psychedelics. I think I see a potential yeah. for bad outcomes. Yeah, and then- Which Texas, is also different than a, recreational yeah. use. Right, right. There, that's kind of the evolution. And now, I mean, look where we are with cannabis. So who knows where, where we'll go with this. But also there's a difference between somebody who needs cannabis because, you know, they're, they're an amputee and it's the only way to make phantom pain go away versus somebody who wants to go smoke it on a Friday night. Yeah. Those are two yeah. very different conversations. Um, I personally favor a legalization model over a decriminalization model because my reasoning for wanting to honestly legalize all drugs is adulteration and harm reduction. Mm. Yeah. Well, and also the idea that, you know, I mean, you had the wherewithal to 
take it upon yourself to get involved in this trial and whatever. But I imagine there are people out there who both veterans and, and, you know, normal citizens dealing with trauma who are afraid to take that step and afraid to seek the, you know, whatever high level professional help they might actually need. Well, how about this? Um, a Navy SEAL currently serving the United States uh, Navy isn't allowed to participate in the trials. Hmm. There's people who are legally blocked from participating. And honestly, like the trials have so many seats and there's yeah. millions of people who, who, who need this. And FDA says, okay, do a trial with a hundred people. We do a trial with a hundred people. Um, but eventually, yeah, when this is, when, you know, my, my hope is, and everything looks to be pointing in this direction, you know, throwing all the caveats in there about how this does not work for everyone. There are risks mm -hmm. involved and it is not FDA approved yet. We're hoping FDA approval sometime in 2023, which means wow. that those clinics will exist. Um, just like ketamine clinics currently exist. And then right. you're looking at psilocybin, my guess is about 18 to 24 months after that. And you will see a steady progression of different substances going through FDA models and also like MDMA, it will only be authorized initially for PTSD. I have a belief as a non-scientist that it would be, that MDMA assisted therapy would be greatly beneficial for other acquired mental illnesses, such as eating disorders, uh, OCD, oppositional defiance disorder, a long list of them. We need to do the trials on those. So it will open MDMA up to more conditions. The other substances, they'll do the same thing. And, and I, this isn't just maps. I'm talking about the generalized yeah. scene, which includes both for-profit and non-profit. Um, but eventually, once they're all FDA approved, you will have those clinics. Because the other big step is once you have FDA approval, that's awesome. This is over 100 plus therapy hours. That's a lot of therapy hours that's really expensive most like average people can't afford that, but they can afford $5 a month for their Zoloft. So that's what they're gonna do. But there's actually a financial incentive for the health insurance companies to cover it because it's a one-time outlay and then they don't have to pay for Zoloft for the rest of their life. Along with other health issues that come along with having PTSD and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, the, so one of the big steps is getting insurance uh, companies, the VA, DOD, you know, Medicare, Medicaid to cover. That's where the MAPS model is kind of cool being a nonprofit. A lot of our intent is to use the money from the people who can't afford it to provide therapy for free to the people who can't, hmm. um, which is kind of how a pharmaceutical company should work. Right. But, <laughs> um, so, so there's a lot of steps, but it's also interesting because we're, we're now going and doing trials in Europe to get EMA approval, which is the European Union version of the FDA. They look at it very differently because they, they, our FDA only looks at safety and efficacy. That's it. EMA looks at cost and cost benefit analysis because in Europe, government pays for healthcare. Right. So right. they care how much it costs. Whereas in the US, Somebody else pays, they don't care about cost, um, which is how you get an Alzheimer's drug that doesn't work on the market for $57,000. Right, right. <laughs> my, mother, my mother died of Alzheimer's. And I believe actually part of her Alzheimer's is because the PTSD she had from her childhood ate her brain. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been trying to keep up on the development of that. It seems um, very complicated. Now, and, realize uh, that's on the market. Right. MDMA therapy is not. Right. No, I mean, it's, I, we, we definitely live in the most hypocritical society when it comes to healthcare and medicine. I'm not going to dispute that. Um, you know, when, and just in talking about the process of, of getting this all um, ramped up and honestly, I'm that timeline you gave is impressive and incredibly interesting. Um, just to think we that we started that 36, close. 35 years ago. So it right. has been a slow process, but part of it is the science and the results. Yeah, I mean, 67% no longer qualifying as having PTSD two months following a four-month protocol. That's 67% of people who don't have PTSD yeah. after six months. Again, it's 
like healing a broken bone. And, and the, the sad part is like how we've been treating PTSD is if you get a gunshot wound, we just wipe away the blood and we're like, that's all we can do. But you know, it's funny. You go back like 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, if you got shot in the arm, wiping away the blood and hoping you don't get gangrene and die, kind of all they could do. Medical technology has advanced since then. We have the ability to stitch it closed and to heal that trauma. Yeah. Doesn't mean the scar's not still there. I still remember everything that happened. My brain yeah. just processes it differently. Yeah. You know, we, so at Political Playlist, we focus on young members of Congress um, specifically because we really see that these are the people who will be making the decisions about the future of our country um, now, but also, you know, as, as the years go by. And as you alluded to earlier, a lot of Congress is, uh, is up there in age. So. I'll, I'll tell you, here's the interesting thing in my experience in yeah. talking with elected officials. One, realize yeah. most staffers are really young and that's who I typically yep. interact with. That's part of how I've been able to, you know, move stuff forward. You know, because even, guess what? Even your Republican staffers did mushrooms in college. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting when it comes to electeds, the really young and the really old are cool with it. It's the middle that's mm -hmm. not. And the reasoning I think is because the really old ones all grew up in the 60s and did it and know it's not as bad as everybody makes it sound. The young, same thing. The middle is stuck in the dare generation right of you know drugs are bad okay and, and that's been really an interesting phenomenon especially when it's nonpartisan. yeah um i know democrats who are vehemently against this they, they do not yeah. believe they believe the dare hype and i know plenty of republicans who are like drugs are cool look at matt gates like I shouldn't bring him up again. Sorry. Maybe a but little, maybe a little too he, cool. He, <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. There, and this is where harm reduction. It's this is yeah. not just about partying. Yeah, about harm course, reduction yeah. and and helping people. And yeah. a lot of people get that. And honestly, I think COVID has helped. Mm. When you have a a a year and a half where everyone's been traumatized in some way, trauma starts to come to the forefront, and like as horrible and god awful as january 6th was one of the upsides the silver lining every staffer and congressman now understands what it's like to be in a life-threatening situation and to mm. be traumatized so they actually listen a lot more because they have more life experience as a frame of reference yeah yeah, it's not that it should have, that issue. is not a defense yeah. of January 6th in any measure, right. but sit, I, I can't tell you how many staffers are like, I, I can't stop having nightmares since January yeah. 6th. I'm, and I'm like, well, are you talking to a therapist? And it's yeah. really kind of funny when I go to meetings and I talk to staffers and they open up about their own mental health. And then I turn into like, okay, let me help you. It, it's, and it's not for political reasons. Like, yeah. I mean, granted, if I can help them and they can heal, then guess what? They're going to realize stuff works. Yeah. But, you know, even if they, they, I'm going to help anyone and everyone because people help me. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to think of, and this is, by the way, this I does mean, not I, mean I go I, yeah. around handing out mushrooms right. to staffers <laughs> right. and stuff. Yes. Um, I plug them we'll in. We'll clarify that. Yeah, I know, but but there's clinical trials and there's there's a lot of stuff that's currently very legally available that that doesn't involve psychedelics that yeah. is very beneficial and helpful. And you know, plugging people into resources is part of what I do. Well, and I think we're also still living in a society where there, I mean, I, I'm 31 years old and I know plenty of people my age as much as I'm 31 and live in LA, which like you can't imagine an area that is more open to therapy than that demographic. But there are still a lot of people I know who are very hesitant just to go to therapy. So even not involving psychedelics or pharmaceuticals or anything like that, you know, part of it is there's still a go big to therapy, part I'm not to convince. Crazy. Yeah. Right. It, right. You're and right, and yeah. this is where you're, you're getting to the stigma. People don't go to therapy because they, they fear the diagnosis. 
Yeah. And, and this is where it goes back to nobody says, well, I'll just limp around with a broken bone because they know it can be healed. If, if something happens and you know there's absolutely nothing the doctors can do, a lot of people don't go. That's how mental health is viewed because yeah. they would rather have problems than be get a scarlet letter, you know, saying I have PTSD, I'm bipolar, you know, I have OCD. And so that is a scary thing. And this is where the stigma reduction value, just the simple fact that there's hope and that this isn't permanent will increase therapy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. cause you're not crazy if they haven't labeled you yet. Right. Right. No, that's such a, such a great point that I'll be sure to bring to the naysayers. I know, um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting just thinking of this, this as it's almost like an experience, um, issue, right. That if you have the experience that connects you to that, you know, to, to wanting to help along the work that MAPS is doing in a, in a legislative way, then suddenly you have an ally on your hands. And I think that that speaks to that, the fact that politics is about experience and it is, it's not just about the words that are said, it's about who the person is and where they come from. And, and this is such a, this is an issue that I think demonstrates that wholeheartedly because it's not about partisanship. It, like you just explained, it really is about people's childhood experiences. It's about their current experiences and how they relate to that. But it also gets interesting because, you know, this is psychedelic science is the one thing that can bring us all together. Hmm. And sometimes it's frustrating because there's people in Congress whose offices have expressed interest in wanting to, to help that no one on the other side will work with because they voted the wrong way on yeah. the election. And that's sad because I believe that you can say that was wrong and abhorrent, but on this issue, they're right. Yeah. You know, it's like Matt Gates and AOC coming together. You know, there's a lot of stuff. There's two things Matt Gates has said about AOC that they agree on. One is about psychedelic science. The other is she's not a bitch because <laughs> he defended her when, when, another yeah, no, I remember that. yeah, yeah. And so like, those are the two things they agree on. Cool. That's a starting point for a conversation first off. Yeah. <clears throat> but also if that's what you agree on and that's what you can get through, cool, let's do it. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Let's not let you're a D you're an R or even honestly, yeah. you're an asshole. And, 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 and you think you're an asshole. If you're right, you're right. Right. And I think it's really interesting when people on both sides of the aisle will sit there and say, you're right, but I'm not going to help because I don't want to give you the win or yeah. I don't want to, you know, be seen agreeing with you. The only people who suffer are the citizens. That's so true. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I think that's, that's very much what, why we started doing what we're doing and actually leads into my last question because one of the most recent current events that a lot of the young politicians that we cover have been discussing is the withdrawal of troops from from Afghanistan and um, you know we have a surprising I wouldn't say surprising but a, a large number of the the members of Congress under 45 are veterans there's 18 out of 75, which is a higher percentage than um, in Congress overall. And, you know, something that we have been- Only 17% of Congress as a whole is hmm. veterans. There you go. Which is and crazy, right? Like that's so, it's so crazy to think about that, that, that experience should exist more in, in our even government. Even crazier is, go look at how many people are currently in Congress or the Senate that actually voted on the 01 AUMF. Mm. I mean, my personal belief on that, and this is absolutely has nothing to do with maps. Uh, as a veteran, as somebody who deployed, I honestly believe that every AUMF should have to be reauthorized by every new Congress. Right, right. Um, as far as we should have gotten out of Afghanistan a long time ago. I supported it when, when, when Obama wanted to do it. I supported it when Trump wanted to do it. I support Biden in doing. Yeah. I'm glad he's bringing the interrogators or, or the translators to translators, yeah. uh, Fort Lee. 
that was one of my big concerns, especially because like we Irish exit an entire country. Yeah, we, we literally left and didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. So, it, but what's frustrating for me is we should have pulled out six or twelve months ago, and it was the most abhorrent thing then. But now it's okay. Like, and this is where troops are used as political pawns by both parties. And don't get me started on military-industrial complex. I'm with Smedley Butler on that one. When you get two medals of honor, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, I would, I'll just say, so the, the AUMF that you're referring to, the authorization of military force, that, uh, again, a lot of the young politicians that we cover supported that. And I think a big reason is that they served in Afghanistan and saw the you know the repercussions of of the what can happen when you have those extended authorizations out there well and, and one of the other things I, i've actually had a lot of veterans reach out to me who've actually been traumatized by by the pullout um that was exactly what i was going to ask about yeah because they, they they feel like all this suffering that they went through was for a reason and because we're pulling out with no real clear objective Mm. achieved they now feel like it was a waste and that like their buddy that didn't come home died for nothing and it's very traumatizing for them yeah um i'm curious if there's going to be a spike in suicides amongst afghan vets in the next two years and i remember because I did not deploy to Afghanistan, I deployed to Iraq, but I remember when ISIS took the base that I was on and I saw towers that I guarded flying the ISIS flag. That was really hard to watch. Mm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't leave. It, it, like, that's part of the problem with Afghanistan is we never really had a goal yeah i mean we really accomplished our actual and like the goals we should have gone there for within like two years max right but you also have things like we had dea deployed to afghanistan because of opium poppy afghanistan was part of the drug war yeah and that's insane yeah that's not why like we went over there no, I, so, so yeah, like I mean, their I, government I, over there yeah. is totally screwed. And like, right. this is where you can only provide so much help before people need to stand on their own. We can't just, you know, prop up Afghanistan for forever. We've done, I mean, every time the US has gone and propped up a country, we kind of screwed the place up. The only time we didn't was the Marshall Plan after World War II. It's our only success. Then the Cold yeah. War, we put dictators and other crap in and like. Yeah. What, when you, you know, you, I was specifically remembering, you know, we, I looked up, um, I saw you had tweeted about this um, last, maybe a couple of weeks ago about supporting the troops that you, that have reached out to you who are feeling like you said, sort of like it was all for nothing. You know, the, the question I have about that is really, first of all, what do you, what do you say to them as a veteran yourself? Um, and then also as citizens who might not understand that, who do not understand that experience of being at war and serving in the military, how can we be more cognizant of what that experience might be like right now as we're going through this process of the troop withdrawal? So part of it is, so, so those are two very different answers. One, they need someone to vent to that understands. Yeah. And, and I'm more than willing to be that ear. And, you know, I do, you know, if if they want to, I'll refer them to various nonprofits, other organizations. Um, I'll I'll be honest, one of the greatest organizations for veterans that I've ever seen is an organization called GiveAnHour.org. They pro bono provide mental health services to veterans who need it. Um, completely outside the VA. If they don't trust the VA, you go onto their website, you put in your zip code, what you're looking for, and they will tell you everyone who's in the, on their list who, who, will, who will work with you. But I, I try to get them help because I'm not a therapist, but I can be that eager and then refer them to wherever is best for them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's more than one phone call of them venting and things like that. And I do talk to them about my story and, and 
and try to instill some hope that like, cause I'm not special. Like if this works for me, it's going to work for everybody. I'm like the most milk toast, mediocre person on the planet. I'm like Joe average. So, <laughs> I mean, it is, I, I just like, I'm not special. Yeah. They may not be able to do it for two years, but if they know it's there, realize yeah, we went to war zones and in like really horrible places and, and see really horrible things. And, it, and one of the things that, that keeps us going is it's going to end one day. We're going to go home. And so knowing that this is coming, veterans will go through an unbelievable amount of shit as long as they know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's when they, they see that light go out, and that's when suicide creeps in. Mm. As for civilians, I'll be honest. Don't talk to them about it. Mm. Don't bring it up. If they bring it up and want to talk about it, follow their lead. But as a civilian, knowing you can't understand, your sole reason for wanting to ask that question is your own curiosity. Mm. And that curiosity could be traumatizing that veteran and bringing up things he's trying not to think about or that he hasn't even thought about. So honestly, and I say this a lot when it comes to civilians, you know, just as there, there's circumstances where, where I, I had a, a circumstance with, with a veteran of color who served in Vietnam and his therapist called for some help and advice on how to like break through to him. And I'm like, I don't have a frame of reference for going and being proud to serve my country and then coming home and living in Mississippi mm. and having black people hate me because I served in the war and white people hate me because I'm black. I don't have a frame of reference for that. I'm like, I can't help you. And I'd love to talk to that veteran and try to help them, but I know I can't. And so, you know, as civilians, sometimes not asking, not, get, not getting the answers to your questions is what's best. Hmm. If veterans want to share, they'll share. Yeah. If they don't, you're kind of putting them in a spot. It goes back to like the old question, did you, you know, did you kill anybody? My response to that is, is always, you know, here's the thing, you're curious, but what you're doing to that individual is, let's say they, they didn't have to commit that horrific act. They now somehow feel like they're less of a soldier because they didn't, or they did, and they live with those demons every day. And you just brought them up to the yeah. surface when they try desperately to keep them buried. And then there's the third kind, which is crazy fucker who's like 67, but I never got that knife kill and he'll scare the piss out of you. So there's really no upside to yeah. asking that question. You're either going to traumatize somebody, make somebody feel bad or get their shit scared out of you. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I know that's probably not the answer that you wanted, no, I think it's want. a very important answer. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, like, that's why I asked as a, as a civilian, I think it's important for us to, to hear straight from the source. So not at all. Now, if somebody comes on a podcast or does an interview, those questions are fair game. But like, if you're talking yeah. about just your friend or somebody you meet in the bar or wherever, like somebody not stepping forward and saying, ask me questions, no. they'll talk about it if they want to. And if they don't, yeah. there's probably a reason. Yeah, no, that's the, it's very good advice. And I think we'll, we'll resonate hopefully with people um, to sort of switch gears as we end, I just, and this can, you know, you, this can be as short or as long as you want, but you know, you've, you've, you've lived a life um, you've experienced many highs and lows in different parts of the world and different parts of our institutions in this country. And I'm curious in a time where I think a lot of people feel confused and lost and a little bit hopeless, um, what it is that, that gives you hope? The fact that I'm alive, hmm. I shouldn't be alive. And had I not done MDMA therapy, I wouldn't be. I know how I used to be. I know how I am now. That gives me hope. My faith in my fellow Americans, not the government, they will fuck shit up six ways to Sunday. You know, I get why the base on both sides doesn't trust the government. I get why 80% of people don't trust government institutions. I have faith in 
my fellow humans. There's bad ones out there, but I have generalized faith. But if three sessions of MDMA therapy can have the can have me go from being inpatient at a VA after slitting my wrists, and within two years, I'm Rand Paul's national veterans director in his presidential campaign on a national level. In two years, just because I did MDMA therapy, anything's possible. Yeah. The fact that like Dan Crenshaw and other Republicans are, are coming forward and wanting to say, how can we help? Gives me hope. The fact that everyone that is our ally on the left and the right, when I talk about my biggest fear is that psychedelic medicine will get tossed into the culture war. I mean, who would have thought two years ago that whether you wear a mask or not would be a Democrat or Republican. Right. And so if it drops into the culture war, a lot of people are screwed and a lot of people are going to die. And so this is where I, I'm very happy that people on the right are stepping up and talking publicly now. Um, and I think MAPS is science and the double blind placebo controlled protocols gives them the ability to do that and to be able to go home to their constituents who like in the South, maybe evangelical Christians who don't even think alcohol should be legal and explain why they're going to support psychedelics. They've got the science. They've got the ability to show, look, this works. Just like we know your insulin works. We, you know, just like we know your Lipitor works, we know this works. And then it flips it onto them. How dare you deny someone the ability to heal? And that's where you, you flip it and use veterans. How dare you deny a veteran who served our country right. the ability to heal from the wounds and demons that they brought back? You know, if, if they were missing their leg, would you deny them, you know, a prosthetic? And tell them, it's okay, just crawl up the stairs because I don't think it's ethically responsible for you to have a prosthetic. No, nobody would say that. Right, right. But when they get worried about what the substance is, instead of looking at the total, the totality. Yeah. But also, there's another interesting, you know, political shift here in that, you know, psychedelics come from the counterculture, the, the super progressive social justice warrior left. And I'm going to Republicans and saying, hey, you know, these people actually have a point on some shit. And they're like, oh, shit, you're right. Then I go back to them and I'm like, see, not all the Republicans are assholes. And they're like, huh, well, shit. It is something that can unify this country. It can unify yeah. the world. I mean, one of the things that a study that, that MAPS was involved in in Israel that I'm really proud of is they had Israeli victims of Palestinian violence and Palestinian victims of Israeli violence get together and do like ayahuasca and do group therapy. You want a Middle East peace? That's how you do it. Wow. But I, but I will also say, do not be fooled into thinking that like if we dose the whole population, which right. is stupid, or that <laughs> put it in the water. somebody does psychedelics, they're all of a sudden going to become, you know, this super hippie person. Yeah. Let's realize the shaman dude in the horns and the furry vest and the makeup does mushrooms. This isn't some weird panacea. A lot of it has to do with set setting and dosage. Yeah. Um, so like, cause I hear so many people, we need to just put LSD in the water supply. I'm like, no, that's a really bad idea on so many levels. <laughs> the fact that like informed consent is a critical component to everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, There's a lot of things wrong with, with that proposition. Like, yeah. I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I, I have issues with Timothy Leary's prison experiment because I don't believe prisoners have the ability to consent, just like I have issues with the mm. DOD's MK Ultra and other programs of, of the type where they removed yeah. informed consent. Yeah. I'm a huge consent person. Oh. So yeah, it all gets interesting, but it, it's something I've always said in politics because I've witnessed the tribalism. I honestly think most of it goes back to the 92 election. Um, so I've witnessed this whole thing evolve. And one of the things I've always said is, look, if we can both look up and say, hey, 
the color of the sky is blue, we can agree on that one thing, we can go from there. And this is where it's been interesting to see psychedelic science become that one thing. I love that. Well, I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I know that you are a very humble man, but what you're doing, I think, is uh, has um, could have a really big impact and already is having a big impact. So thank you for that. And also thank you so much for, for telling me all about it today. I feel enlightened and educated. So um, I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, thank you, John, for joining us. And um, everybody can look up maps and the work that they're doing um, to try to advance this cause. Okay.